Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, crazy, and crazy martinis for conservatives today, and I guess it's going to be lunch Hawaii times. We've had some technical difficulties today, but uh, nonetheless... Munch in Hawaii sounds pretty good, Jim. So uh, here we go. Uh, let's go with our good martini. We talked about the idea of this happening possibly a few weeks ago, but now it actually is happening. Here we go. The Trump administration on Thursday followed through with its plan to pull more than $900 million in federal funds from California's beleaguered high-speed rail project. The U.S. Department of Transportation said California officials failed to make reasonable progress and had not met federal requirements for a project beset with cost overruns. But the decision is also consistent with President Trump's penchant for sparring with leaders of the liberal-leaning state. In addition to revoking the federal government's agreement to contribute $929 million to the project, the administration Thursday said it continues to consider all options regarding the return of $2.5 billion in stimulus funds given to the state. So, Jim, obviously... Any savings we can get is good, particularly when you're throwing good money after bad. When you're running trillion-dollar deficits, it's not going to show up as a huge item on the balance sheet, but uh, it's a good idea, and it's going in the right direction. Yeah, it is good the Trump administration had threatened to do this. It's good to see them following through on what they said they were going to do. A billion dollars is not the biggest savings you could possibly get out of this, but I think it's important symbolic value. California cannot expect federal taxpayers to bail them out for these kinds of projects. Um, And I also think this is kind of a key important lesson for everyone who's touting the Green New Deal, uh, maybe even some of the infrastructure projects that were talked up by the administration uh, that they want to do. Look, we have this idea that they have the costs on, on paper. They have how long it's going to take on paper. Uh, those of us who have experience with these kind of projects know they tend to cost more. The initial projection was $33 billion. Now they're up to $79 billion. People are saying, well, actually, you look at all everything they're going to spend, it's going to be closer to $100 billion. Uh, there was an observation made by Ed Morrissey over at Hot Air that I thought was important. This is nearly $100 billion to run fixed track across the San Andreas Fault and two geologically active earthquake zones. <laughs> uh, he calls it a 19th century solution to a 21st century transportation non-problem. And you think about that. I mean, this is taking forever. It's being a really long time. It's only going to connect uh, two of the smaller cities in California instead of running the full length from San Francisco to L.A. that they were talking about. Um, but now, I mean, you think about it, by the time they complete it all, they're probably going to have an earthquake. California tends to have that. Hopefully it's not the big one where everyone has to be rescued by Dwayne Johnson in a helicopter like we've seen in the movies. We don't, at some point, you're going to have one. And look, you know, earthquakes are bad for everything, but train tracks... <laughs> in particular, are having a very tough time uh, surviving when the earth moves and shakes and moves up and down like that. So uh, a spectacularly bad project. And by the way, one that should be kept in mind as they talk about, oh, with the Green New Deal, we're going to you know, refurbish and redo every single building in America. Look, if you can't make high-speed rail work in the west coast of California, all of these vast, ambitious projects are going to have similar problems when you try to do them coast-to-coast and things like that. Um, an important lesson about those who have been touting high-speed rail for a long time. Can it work in certain areas? Sure. But uh, if California finds it too expensive to operate, it's going to be very tough to see too many other states are going to say, oh, yeah, sign us up. Yeah, I expect the Democrats to push back on this pretty hard, number one, because President Trump is trying to get his money back, so they're not going to like that in and of itself. Uh, but that's uh, this is one of their uh, 
utopia issues. Uh, High-speed rail is going to solve all of our transportation and environmental issues. And uh, we're finding out that it's not quite as simple as they think. On to our first crazy martini now, Jim, and we dive into the intense abortion debate. Not surprisingly, after this string of heartbeat bills and the Alabama law, which has now been signed into law, which bans abortion other than if the mother's life is at stake, um, the Democrats across the board and certainly the Democrats running for president are outraged, saying that Republicans want women to die and that sort of thing, which is always Good, sober, reasoned, measured language. But uh, some are taking it to an even higher extreme, and it just might be, Jim, because they're not doing very well in the polls. Enter Kirsten Gillibrand, New York senator, was down in Georgia on Thursday talking about how outraged she is about the heartbeat bill there. And she had this to say. Uh, This is according to uh, Free Beacon. She also vowed as president to codify Roe v. Wade end the Hyde Amendment, which bans taxpayer funding of abortion, and guarantee access to abortion no matter where a woman lived. Quote, I would ensure that no state can pass laws that chip away at access to reproductive care or criminalize reproductive health care providers. Federal law should supersede harmful state laws that take away women's reproductive freedom. So, Jim, no big surprise that a lot of the libs are uh, pretty intense right now, given what's going on uh, among pro-life legislators in mostly red states. But what do you make of Kirsten Gillibrand just kind of trashing federalism uh, because it's inconvenient for her? Yeah, this is one of those circumstances in which the uh, the actor reads the stage directions out loud. <laughs> Destroy federalism. <laughs> it's kind of what it says in the margins there. Or emphasize states are not independent entities with their own political powers. No, no, no. They are merely administrative centers for Washington and must simply obey the directives from the national capital. Um, look, for those of us who feel like federalism, not, first of all, are you, you're more likely to get response from your state government. Um, you have a much easier time voting those folks out. You have a much easier time tracking down your state legislator uh, if they do something you don't like. Look, in the end, I, I, you, know, you kind of ask Kirsten Gillibrand, what, what do we have states for then if you don't really believe that there should be any difference in laws from state to state? The other thing which is also kind of fascinating is, you know, she said that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, um, you know, that they had voted to uphold precedent. Now, they may have said that in their hearings, but let's also reserve, keep in mind, Brown versus Board of Education, you know, overturned precedent. Sometimes the Supreme Court's going to look at an issue and say, you know what, the established precedent is morally wrong. It is inconsistent with the Constitution and we're going to reverse it. But basically, she is arguing we need far more oversight and accountability over those Supreme Court justices. And if they lied in their hearings, then we should take action. Now, she's not necessarily leading a pitchforks and torches towards their houses or something like that. Um, Greg, I'm so old, I can remember when they announced that if they won the Senate, they were going to impeach uh, Kavanaugh over the Christine Blasey Ford allegations. So now it's just one more reason that they've got to get Kavanaugh off the court. And I assume most Democrats would believe, well, while they're at it, they should really take off Clarence Thomas, too, over the Nita Hill allegations. So, look, when you're at 1% in the polls, I guess you just kind of, you know, you're you stop trying to put together policy plans and you just start you know, wishing on a star, (laughs) you know, if I could change the law, if I could change the government in any way, shape or form, I would get rid of all the Supreme Court justices I don't like. And I'd get rid of all the state laws I don't like. She's not running for president, Greg. She's running for, you know, queen of the world, basically. (laughs) Yeah, I love the fact that she's going down there to say to Georgia Democrats, man, Georgia, I'm with you all the way. And so what I'm going to do to help you if you elect me president is make sure you never get to make any decisions for yourself ever again. I will save you from yourselves. I will relieve you of the burden of responsibility and freedom. <laughs> and uh, as you pointed out uh, on Friday, Jim, in, in your writings for the Jolt, is that uh, 
more than likely, if this makes it to the Supreme Court, if it's even uh, they accept cert on this, don't expect that uh, Alabama's likely to win. It's uh, very much a question when you look at Kavanaugh and certainly Justice Roberts. Yeah. Um, now, I had some pushback on this. Uh, Ed Whalen, a guy I respect a great deal, says I, he would not expect Roberts to make a similar kind of decision that Obamacare, there was a different question of judicial philosophy before him. But uh, look, if you subscribe to the common narrative, and uh, John Roberts has never quite laid out his, you know, exactly why he changed his mind on the Obamacare individual mandate back in that key case back in 2012. Look, there's a common interpretation of it that the liberals and Democratic senators in the Obama administration said very clearly, if the court strikes down Obamacare's individual mandate, we will insist that this is partisan. We will insist that this is the Supreme Court meddling in a presidential election, and we will destroy the Supreme Court's reputation. It will never be trusted. It will never have the stature it has today if they rule this way. Uh, that is basically an attempt to intimidate John Roberts. Maybe that's what went into his decision. Maybe it isn't. But if it is... Look, you know, I, you know, a guy who buckled on that does not strike me as the kind of guy who would not buckle under a similar pressure campaign in a decision that could have ramifications for, for Roe versus Wade. All right, on to the final crazy martini for the week. Uh, Jim, this comes to us from Fox News. The new adversity score. Uh, this is uh, from the College Board with your SAT score. They're planning an adversity score, which calculates 15 different factors, including the crime rate and poverty level from the student's high school and neighborhood. Students, according to Fox News, won't be privy to their scores but colleges and universities will see them when reviewing applications. This guy, David Coleman, chief executive of the College Board, says, quote, There are a number of amazing students who may have scored less on the SAT but have accomplished more. We can't sit on our hands and ignore the disparities of wealth reflected in the SAT. Jeremiah Quinlan, dean of undergraduate admissions at Yale, quote, This adversity score is literally affecting every application we look at. It has been a part of the success story to help diversify our freshman class. So, Jim, I think a lot of people love stories of people who grow up in, in difficult situations and they're still able to succeed. They, uh, Whether it's a difficult home environment, a crime-ridden neighborhood, uh, people who discourage them from studying, which happens in some cases, uh, and they still make it, and they, but they still come a bit short. Yeah, you want to see them still get a chance, but to deny spots to people who have achieved really, really well and even higher than these other people certainly seems wrong, too. Yeah. Um, let me just begin this topic by putting out a crazy, wacky thought that uh, could be considered quite radical in, in, in education circles. Colleges and universities, what if you evaluated each applicant as an individual? <laughs> what? Instead of saying, well, how many, how many do we have to check this box? How many do we have to check? Come on, we need more of this, fewer of that. Come on, we got you know. It's got to look like a Benetton ad by the time we're finished. Um, look, you know, look, you know, there's nothing wrong with this. The, the, I guess, the, I guess, let me put it this way: there's nothing wrong with the concept of saying, "Hey, we want a chunk of our student body to be people who have managed to overcome adversity. We believe people who do this deserve a little extra reward. They deserve. They've earned those opportunities. If you've dealt with poverty, if you've dealt with a broken home, if you've dealt with uh, addiction in your family, or um, health problems or any of these other things that can make getting through life a lot tougher. We want to salute that. We want to recognize that. And we want to ensure you have the opportunities to succeed just like everybody else. That's a great, that's a great you know, incentive there. Doing this by zip code or the poverty in your community or in your neighborhood, God, this, you know, that's not judging people <laughs> by, their, by their individual stories. What if you happen to be somebody who's okay, doing, doing financially fine, but you're in a jurisdiction that has one of these low, high poverty or something? 
Um, considering how we just saw this giant uh, admission scandal of all the folks from Hollywood and all these wealthy families trying to, you know, game the system and all that kind of stuff. If you create this kind of incentive, you can see the sort of thing where you'd see people trying to, ironically, you'd end up flipping all the real estate values. You know, you'd want to be in the poet, the poorest category as possible to be able to say, oh, you know, I grew up in this, I'm living in this, you know, poor, poor environment. Um, now, whether or not the person that's a legal residence and whether they're actually living there might be a different story. Um, you know, what we've learned from this thing is that any criteria you put out there, a certain number of people are going to try to game. Um, and it's one of those things where I don't, you know, this used to be the sort of thing you'd put in your admissions essay. This used to be the sort of thing that, you know, you would let the, the student tell that story instead of saying, well, let's go to the Census Bureau. Let's look at the economic data. Let's look at all this stuff and create some sort of statistical profile. And then we're going to use that, you know, to calculate it. And the fact that the SAT is doing that and they're going to weight the scores by this strikes me as just a formula for resentment, a formula for, you know, look, at the end of the day, either you got the questions right or you didn't. And it does not matter where you live to calculate that score. Jim, your extremism is on a roll this week. First, you're a human supremacist with our PETA Jimmy Carter story on Thursday. And now you actually think people ought to be judged based uh, as individuals rather than uh, checking a demographic box. I'm, I'm appalled. Yeah. You know, Greg, I thought climate change was supposed to mean we we're going to get less snowflakes or fewer <laughs> snowflakes. Well, there's nothing like having a good joke and then botching the grammar. Ah. <laughs> Jim, well, at least we're at the week's end. It actually is Friday. Have a good weekend and we'll see you on Monday. Greg, it's one of those rare moments where it's because of delays, it feels like Monday. I'll see you, I will see you on actual Monday uh, in just a few days. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.